Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we are in 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, We're going to be finishing up chapter 5. I want to catch you up a little bit from where we were last week, if you weren't here, because we're picking up in many ways in the middle of a story. I sort of paused right in the middle of it. There's three characters you'll need to be familiar with to understand what's taking place in the second half of chapter 5. The first of those, of course, is the prophet Elisha, who continues to be central to these stories The second of those characters is Elisha's servant, a man we met in previous chapters named Gehazi. Gehazi had been there alongside Elisha, running errands, participating in some of the miracles before, and he shows up again in this story as well. The third of those characters we looked at last week was a man named Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian general, a powerful man, respected, second only to the king in Syria, not an Israelite, a part of a Gentile pagan religion to the north. But he had come to Israel because of a great need that he was experiencing. He had come with a great amount of wealth, and he had come ready to pay, to give honor to Israel's God, to receive, hopefully, a healing from his leprosy. Last week, we saw how, in fact, he was healed. As he came to the house of Elisha, Elisha sent a servant out to instruct him to go and bathe in the Jordan River. Initially, Naaman, as we saw last week, was offended by this. A man of his stature, his significance, his reputation certainly deserved Elisha himself coming out. And as Naaman thought, some more spectacular miracle. Maybe Elisha would wave his hands over him, some display that others could see. But this idea of a servant coming out to greet him and instructing him to go and bathe in the humble Jordan River was not what he was expecting. And Naaman had initially gone away angered, enraged, offended, and frustrated. It's important to remember as well, I've been pointing this out through several of the stories in 2 Kings, that it was one of Naaman's servants who got his attention, who said to him as he left angry and offended, don't you realize this is actually good news? You've been promised the healing you came for. And so it was that Naaman went and obeyed and washed in the Jordan and his leprosy was in fact healed. We're going to pick up at that point. That's where we stopped reading last week. He obeyed by the servants, uh, helping him recognize the goodness of the message, and sure enough, had been healed of his leprosy. But the story picks up in verse 15 and actually just continues. We paused right in the middle of it. So where we read in verse 15, Naaman has just come out of the waters and realized that his leprosy is in fact gone. So 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Then he, this is Naaman, returned to the man of God, Elisha, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my servant has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. 
So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied and he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi and when he came to the hill he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him where have you been Gehazi and he said your servant went nowhere but he said to him Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. The first thing that should catch your attention about that story, the real... uh, remarkable part of the story are these words of Naaman that he offers to Elijah at the beginning. Remember, Naaman is not an Israelite. He has previously gone away from Elisha's house, enraged, furious, offended. He's probably even reluctant to obey, dipping himself into the Jordan, frustrated that this was not the kind of miracle he had anticipated or expected. But now listen to the words this same Naaman speaks to Elisha. There is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Naaman is a Syrian. He's a Gentile pagan who probably believed, as he seems to from the beginning of the story, that every land had its own God that needed to be worshipped and appeased, that some of those gods may have specialized in certain works. He had come to Israel not to denounce his faith or to worship Israel's God, But he had come with a great amount of money hoping to appease Israel's God and somehow earn a healing from it. But now he says remarkably, there is no other God in all the land except for the God of Israel. Naaman set out with gold and silver and servants and rich clothing. He came to try and get a healing. But now at this point in the story, we realize he has gotten far more than just his leprosy healed. Naaman doesn't just say that Israel's God is great or powerful or capable. He says that there is no other God besides the God of Israel. It really is a remarkable thing for a Syrian, a pagan, to say. If that wasn't enough, there's actually more. He goes on to offer Elisha a gift, an act of worship, part of the riches that he had brought. But he sets up that gift by saying, so accept now a present from your servant. That's the kind of thing you read uh, over and over in your Bible and probably glance by. It sounds like the formality of a title, receive this gift from your servant. But this is the very man who just left Elisha frustrated and offended by the fact a servant came out to greet him, a man so respected and great in power. He was offended because he was a great general with great wealth, He was offended because his position should have earned him more reputation and regard and renown. But now he describes himself after this miracle as a servant of Elisha. 
That's quite the reversal. The very man who was just offended by being greeted by a servant instead of Elisha now describes himself as a servant to Elisha. This idea of servants is one of the big themes that's been developing across the book of 2 Kings. I've been trying to point it out to you as we work through these stories, this comparison between the kings of Israel, the generals, the rulers, the people of influence, and these humble servants that so often are alongside them in the stories. Over and over, the kings and generals appear to be undiscerning, unwise, unable to recognize what it is God is doing or what God wants. They fight against God, rebel against God, they make assumptions about God, and over and over, they are thwarted by God, opposed by God, sometimes even embarrassed by God. But alongside these kings, undiscerning and unwise, are always these humble servants, servants who recommend maybe they should ask what God is doing, maybe they should track down a prophet of God, maybe this was actually good news and not an offense. You could put Naaman in this same camp as those kings. He couldn't recognize the good news of what he was hearing from Elisha. He was offended, and it took a servant of his to recognize that it was good news. Servants recommended they find Elisha, recommended they obey this word of healing, recommended that they see what God was doing instead of their own actions. And so now how shocking is it to find one of these prototypical rulers, generals, kings, caught up in his own will, suddenly now putting himself in the position of one of these servants, suddenly taking on the language of a servant to describe himself. I think that's a pretty big deal, and a part of what many of these chapters have been building too, that it's possible to go from being one of these blind, dull, indulgent king rulers to a humble, discerning, and wise servant. Naaman has not just been physically healed, certainly that was true, but there had also been a complete reworking of his faith, who God was, and also a reworking of his identity, who he now was. Naaman doesn't just come and say, you know, I've always had a pride problem. We all see that now, the way I reacted, overreacted the offense. So now that God's healed me, maybe I'll try to work on that. I'll try to be a little more humble in the future. Now, what you see is a complete transformation of how he sees himself and who he understands himself to be. His whole identity reworked in this moment. Before, he had been upset by Elisha's disrespect, but now he comes to offer himself in respect of Elisha. Before he was upset, Elisha sent a servant to greet him. Now he describes himself as one of these servants. But if those two things, recognizing Israel's God as the only God, recognizing himself now as a servant of that God, if that wasn't enough, Naaman wants to offer his wealth as a gift. He wants to offer it as gratitude and thanks for the healing he's received. His motive in this story seems to be genuine. He isn't trying to buy the healing anymore. Perhaps that was his initial motive, but he's received it. Instead, he tries to hand off this silver and gold and royal garments as a way of honoring Elisha and honoring Elisha's God. But as you see in the story, Elisha refuses. It strikes me as one of those classic arguments where somebody's trying to pay for someone else's meal and the other person's saying, no, 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 I've got it. No, 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 let me pay. No, no, no. That's the thing that's going on, right? Naaman has received this great healing, and he's saying, let me give you something for it. And Elisha's saying, no, 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 no payment. We'll take something. They're back and forth. Naaman finally makes a request, which is in and of itself interesting. He pivots from, take what I have to, let me ask something of you. 
What he asks for is that he can take two donkey loads of dirt, Israelite dirt, home with him when he goes back to Syria. That may seem strange, but what he's hoping to do is he's hoping to take some of the ground from Israel, to set it at his home in Syria, and build there an altar so that when he gets home, he can sacrifice to Israel's God on Israel's ground that he's brought back with him. It's really a pretty remarkable thing that he requests. He not only wants to recognize Israel's God as the only God, but he's trying to figure out how can I continue to worship this God even as I go back home to a pagan territory with a different God who's ruling. He even goes so far as to say, will God forgive me when my royal responsibilities back home require me to participate in royal worship of Syrian gods? Can I be forgiven if I continue to worship in my home on this Israelite dirt, the God that I now see as the only true God? And so it is, Elisha sends him in peace. It's hard to imagine a person being more transformed. He's transformed in the way he sees his wealth, transformed in the way he sees his own reputation, transformed in his religion, the God that he recognizes. He's suddenly trying to work out, how do I replan my whole life and way of living? It is a radical, identity, life-changing salvation that he experiences alongside this healing. But unfortunately, that's not the main point of this story, as powerful as it is. The story is really, as it's titled in my Bible, about this servant, Gehazi. For that servant, who has always been getting it right, the servants being the focal point so often of the discerning wise person in the story, now that changes too. Gehazi stumbles. Suddenly, it is the great general who becomes the true servant, and the servant who becomes hungry, greedy, and covetousness. All this talk about being a servant isn't, in the end, about just being poor, making yourself in a position of weakness. That maybe if you want to be like these servants that get it right, you just need to put yourself in a similar position. No wealth, no power, no influence, and then you could be a truly holy person. There's certainly been Christians who believe that sort of thing. If we could just make the pastor poor enough, if we could just make the the, the people in the church poor enough, then they certainly wouldn't deal with greed, if only it were that simple. This servant lives in that kind of servant position. He and Elisha certainly don't appear in the story to be wealthy. Their influence is not always taken advantage of, as it sees in this, seems in this story, maybe as the servant is now frustrated about. They stand up to kings, oppose kings. Why shouldn't they be able to have some of what the kings themselves have? A Syrian general, general becomes a servant, and in this story, a servant begins to act like those very kings that they had opposed. Gehazi decides to chase Naaman down and requests some of that wealth that he was so willing to give that he returned some of that wealth to Gehazi and, by his story, Elisha. Gehazi's motives aren't entirely clear in the the story or the language that he uses. I find that when we experience greed, it's often that way. No one says to themselves, you know what, I think I'm going to give in to some greed today. You know what, I think I'm going to go covet something and lie and take it from someone. You know what, I'm going to make an idol out of that thing that I see over there and just worship it for a while because it feels good. That's not how we fall into sin or covetousness. We're more deceptive than that. We know best how to lie to ourselves, and we come up with all kinds of reasons and justifications for why we deserve it, why it's right for us to have it. 
Perhaps the only thing humans are better at than sinning is justifying that sinning, convincing ourselves why it's a good thing, a right thing. And so it is Gehazi says to himself, see, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. It's not entirely clear what motivates him. This language, my master has spared or restrained Naaman, isn't entirely clear. Gehazi may have felt that Elisha was too easy on the man. Do you remember Naaman first learned about Israel's God because there was a kidnapped girl, an Israelite, working in his home, a slave that he had captured on a raid in Israel that first told him about Israel's God and its power to heal leprosy. So it may be that Gehazi says, don't you know the things this man has done to Israelites? Don't you know the way he's raided and pillaged and taken from us? And now you're just going to let him receive his healing and go home as if nothing previous has happened? Perhaps Gehazi is saying, we deserve some of what he's taken. After all, some of what he has is taken from us. Why not return it to us? Surely his repentance can't be so cheap. It should cost him something to demonstrate that it's genuine. He did owe them something, if this was in fact a genuine change of heart. Or perhaps Gehazi felt Elisha had kept the man from a blessing. You've heard this line before, right? He should have allowed the man to give generously so that God could have blessed him for what he had given generously. Elisha was robbing Naaman of a blessing. He should have been willing to take his possessions so God could have blessed Naaman in return. You see how easy it is for us to start justifying, to start crafting reasons and excuses. We see it in the story as exactly what it is, greed, covetousness. But to Gehazi, I'm sure there were all kinds of reasons for justifying it. Elisha was wrong to spare Naaman, and so Gehazi fills in the gaps with all the reasons he needs for why some of what Naaman had should be his. Whatever self-justification, whatever he convinced himself his motives were, we recognize it, and so does Elisha. Naaman gives generously, believing the story that Gehazi catches up with him and shares. Naaman was happy to be generous, happy to give. He had been willing before, and now as he discovers this new need, he's happy again. In the ancient world, it was pretty common for people to refuse a gift. Sometimes gifts could be seen as, a, as an act of superiority. I have something and I'm gifting it to you. So somebody who was in an ancient honor-shame culture trying to put themselves on equal level would often refuse the gift as a way of saying, I don't need what you possess. You and I are the same. And so it may have been that Naaman thought Elisha was saving face. He wouldn't publicly receive the gift, but now that he had wrote off, he would secretly send a servant to say, with no one watching, you know, we really could use some of that if you wouldn't mind. And so Naaman is happy to do it. He's happy to give a little, happy to support Elisha, happy to fund these two prophets that have unexpectedly shown up by the story that Gehazi shares. His prophets needed some help, and Naaman was happy to do it. But as Gehazi returned, as he returned with this lie... Elisha immediately saw through it. He knew exactly what had happened, sensed what had happened, and Gehazi got away with nothing. So it is, the story concludes, with Gehazi removed from his position, no longer a servant to God or Elisha, 
And as we read at the end, he now carries the leprosy that Naaman had been healed of. What God had removed from Naaman is now put on Gehazi. Now that may seem like a harsh thing. He asks for a little help, a little cash, and he ends up with leprosy at the end of the story. He ends up losing this position of servant to Elisha. One of the things I want you to pay attention to when you read things like this in the Bible, when the punishment seems in your eyes not to fit the crime, is to ask yourself if more might be going on in the story than you realize. God's judgments are good and fair, and so often it's our own self-justifications that sometimes keep us from seeing the real severity of the disobedience, the real severity of the sin that makes God's judgment right. Naaman came to Israel with great wealth. He was ready to spend every dime he had to get healed. Naaman worshipped at the beginning of this story like all of the ancient cultures around him. They looked at the gods and said, those gods have certain particular powers, but to get access to their powers, you have to appease them. You have to win their favor. You have to do something remarkable for the god so that in return, the god will be impressed and do something remarkable for you. And so it was that Naaman had come into Israel with all of the wealth that he could carry, hoping that he could impress the god of Israel and so by it receive from that god a healing. As Naaman packed up all those possessions and prepared he and his group to travel to Israel, he understood that he was doing this, offering all of this, to get something, a payment, a bribe, an offer of sacrifice to receive. But what in the story did Israel's God actually require of him? It certainly wasn't money. Elisha refused to receive a dime of it. What Israel's God had expected from Naaman was not his wealth or money, but his pride, his position. It was his willingness to lay down his reputation as a great man and put himself into that position of a humble servant to obey the simplest of commands, go and wash yourself. And by his reaction, it's clear it was the very thing Naaman least wanted to do, to sacrifice who he was. He was willing to give of his wealth. He wasn't willing to give of his position. And that is the thing that Israel's God had asked of him. God wanted Naaman to receive something for free, to receive something not by wealth or manipulation, but by personal change, by the sacrifice of his pride. Naaman seems to have understood this. As he came up healed, his identity reworked, he now identifies himself as a servant. He is dramatically impacted by what is different about Israel's God than any of the gods around him. He realized not only was Israel's God the only true God, but the way this God was worshipped and served was fundamentally different than all of the gods he had experienced in any other place. This God could not be bought off, could not be worked, could not be manipulated. This God looked into a man's heart and saw the thing that he cared for most and required it to be laid down, pride and position, true worship and humility. What Gehazi risked was not just money. The thing that Gehazi does is not just take something that wasn't his. He risks undoing the very lesson that God wanted Naaman to learn from this experience. So it turns out that Elisha is in fact in need. 
It turns out Elisha did need something that Naaman came with. Naaman now does a favor for him. This idea of God requiring nothing was the lesson. But by Gehazi's lie, suddenly Naaman thinks and puts himself in the position again of the one who possesses and returns the favor. That may be not a big thing. It may have been a small act. But the enemy only needs a small foothold, a crack within this message of God's free grace to suddenly pivot us once again back into thinking that God's favor is something we earn, something we can get, something we can buy. Suddenly, this radical message of free grace is cheapened by this lie that Gehazi introduces. It turns out God's prophets do have a need. It turns out they do need a little help from someone like me, a man of great wealth. You can see how subtly that undermines the whole lesson of what God had been teaching Naaman in the story. The message was supposed to be that Elisha does not need power or influence or wealth because Elisha has access to the true God. Elisha has everything he needs and is dependent on no one for power or wealth because of God. But by Gehazi's greed, he shifts that story and now puts Naaman back into the possession of possessing something that Elisha could use a little help getting. Two prophets showed up. We don't have any way to take care of them. We turn not to God, but Naaman, could you actually share a little of that wealth you possess with us? And you see how the whole message of grace begins to break. Gehazi may not have reversed the entire lesson, but certainly complicates it, obscures it, and threatens it by his own greed. So what do you do with a story like this? A few things. Number one, you should not be naive about how easy it is for you to justify your greed, your covetousness, your sin. Gehazi, after all, had been following Elisha through unbelievable miracles. This was a man who had literally seen Elisha raise a boy from the dead, who had witnessed healings and, by the way, had witnessed miraculous acts of provision in which God had poured out financial blessing on those who needed it. He had seen the way God would rise to the occasion to provide for every need in sickness and in wealth. He, Gehazi, had access to God and God's prophet, things not even kings had access to. Everyone in Israel wanted a word with Elisha, and he was the very one who could enter in and out of that room freely. But still, he found himself wanting something, needing something, justifying that desire as something he deserved. I don't think greed and covetousness are really gone from our hearts at any moment. It's what our hearts and their brokenness do, desire and want and scheme and justify The question is not, do you know if you are coveting something? The question is, do you know what you are coveting now? And do you know how to check that thing? How to keep it from leading you into self-justifications, into deception and lies and disobedience? The real risk is living with that covetousness, living with it unaware to you and justifying it and acting upon it. We in the brokenness of our sinful humanity, are best at lying to ourselves, best at justifying ourselves, best at convincing ourselves that this greed within us is something true 
and real and something we deserve. Second, we cannot be too careful about how our lives complicate and pollute the free grace of God's message. We, receiving this free grace, something we'll spend so much time this week reflecting and thinking on, the sacrifice of a Savior who dies for us while we are still in sin, it comes to us as this remarkable message of grace, mercy, not earned or deserved or paid for, but poured out on us by his sacrifice. And like so many, we quite naturally receive it and then go on to start manipulating it, to working it, assuming we know what God should and shouldn't be doing around us, assuming we know how people now, because they're saved, should and should not be acting. We stop listening to what God is doing and start writing into who God is, everything we think, we desire, we expect. Perhaps you're right in those things. Perhaps you do really know how that person is living wrongly, or perhaps you really do know what God should and shouldn't do in this situation. The truth is you can't trust yourself. You can't live in that sense of what you think, what you feel, being a substitute for what God is actually doing in those moments. Because our human tendency is to obscure, to complicate, for our greed and self-justification to turn the gospel and its grace itself into yet another scheme, another plan, another angle. We have to learn to quiet our hearts, to discern what God is actually doing, and actually saying how he is presenting his gospel, his good news as real grace in the lives around us, complicated as that usually is. So what is the way to this clarity? To overcome greed, to keep from obscuring the things of God with our own self-justifications? The way we overcome coveting is by realizing what we already possess. Elisha asks Gehazi a really interesting question towards the end of the passage. He says to him, Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? What's so interesting about that question is that it implies there is a time to receive those things. He doesn't say to him, Don't you know it's never our place to receive money or garments or orchards or vineyards? He says to him, was this that time? Was this that moment to receive? The truth is, there is a time in which God pours out blessing, in which he pours out riches, in which he gives and bestows on us. What Gehazi missed was this was not that moment. This was not that possession. This was not that thing. I think Gehazi just got tired of being a poor servant, of being a poor prophet. Why shouldn't they get paid a little too? They were more powerful than kings, after all. Why not have a little of what the kings had? What Elisha understood was that was not the thing God was doing. That was not the moment of the story in which he was pouring out that blessing. A day would come in which those riches would be handed over. A day was coming when all of the wealth of all of the kingdoms of the world would stream into the temple of Jerusalem. A day coming where every knee would bow A day coming where every earthly crown would be taken off of the ruler's head and laid at the feet of Israel's God. A time was coming when the people would be blessed, riches pouring out, streets paved with gold. But this was not that moment. You see, Gehazi's desires were not entirely wrong. 
You have to listen to me very carefully on this point. God does want you to be blessed. God does want you to be healed. He wants you to live in his riches. But it's not always that moment. This isn't that final time. And that isn't at this moment what he is most concerned with doing. What he wants now is for all to be saved, for his grace to be clear to the world around us. If you want the secret to health and wealth, the secret to true power and influence, your life to feel like it means something, a reputation, the truth is those are the very things God is giving you now. But he's not giving them in the way this world teaches you to look for them or experience them. If you want to know how to overcome greed and coveting, it isn't determination. It isn't just a rigid fasting or a forced poverty. That just gives you a deeper sense of what you think you actually deserve and why you deserve it. Don't you see all that I've been sacrificing all this time? Don't I deserve something now? That's what got Gehazi off. All of the sacrifice and all of the poverty, surely at some point it's my time to receive. It's also, by the way, what Naaman got right. After everything I've accumulated, it's not worth what I thought it was. I am a servant. I can give it all away because all I need is some soil, some ground to worship this God who can do and give anything. You break the power of greed by realizing that in Christ you have access to all of the things your greed and covetousness are promising you. That's the great reversal of what the gospel offers. The story that we read about is this reversal. Gehazi had what Naaman wanted. God, health, access, but he traded it away for what Nehemiah had, excuse me, Naaman had and didn't want. Wealth, but in the end, sickness, and a sacrificing of this position as a servant. He became what Naaman had been. He wanted what Naaman had, and he got it. Leprosy and all. Hopefully you begin to see why this punishment makes sense. God is in the end giving Gehazi exactly what he wants. Naaman's life, his wealth, his lack of understanding, his lack of access to God, and the sickness that went along with it. And Naaman goes away receiving the very things that Gehazi had, an understanding, a discernment, a healing, a position of servant, the true worship of Israel's God. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day in which the church remembers Jesus entering Jerusalem, the palm branches, the cries of Hosanna, the son of David, the worship. As we prepare ourselves for this week that's ahead, this holy week, this week of Christ's passion, what I hope you take away is the real power of gratitude, of recognizing what you have received from God and how recognizing it frees you from greed and covetousness. The things this world most wants, power and money and wealth, are really just attempts at deeper things. They're looking for security. They're looking for peace. They're looking for health. Those are the very promises of God, not through the world's power, 
not through the world's riches and bank accounts, but by what you have received in Christ, eternal security, the wealth of his heavenly kingdom, the healing, the hope of resurrection. Everything that your greed stirs up within you, Christ offers in a better, more eternal, more secure way. And the way we overcome this greed, this greed of the world with all of its self-justifications that plague us, is realizing that we have those very things now in Christ. This week, as we prepare to receive again communion together on Good Friday, the message of resurrection again on Easter Sunday, maybe this week we could begin, this Sunday, a starting point for receiving again all that he has offered to understand once again that this is free grace, to understand once again that this free grace gives us the things this world can't, true wealth and true peace and true healing, eternally ours, not because we bought it, not because we earned it, not because we traded something valuable for it, but because Christ died, because he offered himself as a sacrifice, not willing that any should be lost, but pouring out his grace free, costing us nothing more than our desire to lay down our pride, to lay down our own way, to put ourselves in the position of a servant, to say that this is, after all, the one true God, the King of all kings, and to worship him, to carry some of that dirt home to your own house, to lay your life as a living sacrifice upon it, and to worship this God and receive freely from him. Let's close in prayer this morning and we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we realize even this morning there are so many sins, desires, greed, and covetousness that stirs in our heart. And God, how quickly we justify it. How quickly we convince ourselves we deserve it. How quickly we shift away from this gospel of free grace to judging ourselves and one another, to making demands, to manipulating you. God, we see this morning how easy it is for even one of your servants to do it. To lose sense of what they have and reach for the things of this world. And we see, God, the devastating consequences of it. The death, the brokenness, the sickness, the loss of place and purpose. So we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would free us from it. That God, you, by the power of your gospel, by the power of your spirit, would move in our hearts and pour into us again a sense of what we have in you. That we have, through your death and resurrection, everything that this world is searching for. True riches and true wealth true healing and resurrection, purpose and identity and meaning and calling, security, eternal security. God, we recognize this morning that it doesn't come like it does in the world, in bank accounts and in awards and reputation, that you do something better. You offer something better. So I pray this morning you would prepare our hearts to receive it again this Easter week. That as we read and reflect on your coming, our hearts would anticipate your coming again to us. That Friday, as we gather together to remember your death, your sacrifice upon the cross, that as we share in communion with one another, we would drink again to our own death. That we would die to ourselves and find in you 
through that death, a new resurrection, that as Easter comes, we would be born again with you into this new kingdom, this new identity, this new flesh of your resurrection, hope and eternal security. God, fill our hearts by your spirit with joy, with peace, with a sense of security that's new. That God, this just wouldn't be a holiday to celebrate, but as it was for Naaman, once again, it would be a reworking of who we are, a reworking of our identity and our worship and our place in this world, that we would carry some piece of it back into our homes and our workplaces and live upon it, your people, your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, even this morning as we close in worship, move in our hearts, prepare our hearts, make us hungry again to receive everything that you've given us by this free message of grace, your gospel that's good. It's in your name we pray.